We're going to be in the uh, rather eerie fifth chapter of the book of Daniel tonight. We're not going to read the whole thing. So you might, if you have a Bible, if you want to open and turn there, or you can follow along with the excerpted part that I've uh, put in the bulletin. It's a strange town to ask this question, yeah, but uh, have you ever been to a hurricane party? <laughs> you ever heard of a hurricane? Uh, hurricane parties are... Um, Things that uh, people who talk like I do uh, sometimes do in response to impending hurricanes uh, to taunt the weather or the weather report or to show some kind of bravado in the face of death. But, you know, we're not evacuating, we're throwing a party. Uh, do your worst, hurricane. It's the kind of attitude that you think would contribute to the Darwin Awards over here. <laughs> but as far as I know, Nobody's ever died at a hurricane party. Um, that's a record that doesn't seem likely to last, but so far, that seems to be the case. Um, we've got uh, a problem. Of the reason you want to have a hurricane party is because the hurricane sort of strips away the facade of things that we used to keep from thinking about our impending deaths. You know, we like to not think about how fragile and mortal we are, and so we usually can distract ourselves, but... You know, a hurricane's pretty hard to ignore. And so um, you got to do something sort of extra to not have to actually stop and be still and face your impending mortality uh, when the hurricane's coming. The chapter we're going to look at in Daniel 5 is something of a hurricane party. Uh, it looks just like a normal uh, Babylonian bacchanalia, but it's not. Um, it's the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And the people at the party pretty well know this. And the party doesn't go uh, with as much bravado as they thought it would at first. So that's what we're going to think about. Uh, the problem of death and our tendency to deny uh, the reality of death and how that's harmful to us. So aren't you glad you came to church tonight? I <laughs> get to talk about it. So, let me pray for us, and then we'll read. Father, we ask that you would um, grant us open hearts and eyes and minds before you uh, to think about things that we usually prefer not to think about, and ask that you would grant us the heart of wisdom that you promise to those who number their days. So, come speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read beginning the first uh, six verses, and then uh, 22 to 31. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. 
then he called Daniel in to interpret the writing on the wall that he couldn't understand. And Daniel tells him about his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and what God had done to humble him, which we read about in the last chapter. And he picks up in verse 22. He says, You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like three phrases at least that have carried over into modern English usage. Uh, through the King James translation of the book of Daniel. First one's from chapter 2, where you had the, the, the vision of the statue that had clay feet. And so we'll talk today about someone having feet of clay, meaning that they're fallible or fragile. Feet of clay. And then there are two from this chapter. When someone says, your days are numbered, you know what that means, right? And that means that your, your gig is up. You're fixing to die. Uh, your days are numbered. Or if they say, the handwriting is on the wall. They say, your destiny is obvious and fixed. Uh, we still use those terms. Uh, they came from this eerie party that uh, at first sounds like the typical Babylonian taffy pool. You know, there was drinking and there was dancing and there was sex. It doesn't mention fighting, but you know, where I'm from, I assume that there was also fighting in a party like this. But the context that's not mentioned right away is that the whole Babylonian army has been defeated in the last couple of days. Uh, about 50 miles away from there, they'd had a pivotal battle, and there was no more Babylonian army to defend their, their capital city at all. Now, they were having a party inside the walled capital city, which was uh, an elaborate wall. They felt really safe, even though, I don't know how safe you feel if you know your whole army is defeated, but um, it was kind of a siege-proof city. They had really high, thick walls, and they had the Euphrates uh, uh, channeled under the walls of the city, so they had a water supply. And they even had agricultural areas inside the walled area, so they could sustain a really long siege. And so they felt some, some self-confidence about that, some unassailability there, but really uh, they knew that things were uh, about over. And so when they're having this party, it's kind of a hurricane party. It's a, uh, let's just, let's be braggadocious and pretend we're not afraid when, of course, we're dead afraid and with good reason. And so this is what's happening 
for them. They're, they're drinking and celebrating and bringing out the vessels from, that they brought from Jerusalem and things. It's kind of a, uh, we're going to sort of escapist, not think about what's really happening to us, sort of a revel in past glories about the kingdoms that we defeated. We'll, we'll drink out of their goblets and mock their gods and... You know, it's just all posturing, bravado kind of stuff, but they're doing it to keep from having to really face uh, what's going on for them. All right? They're clinging to whatever little glory they can uh, preserve in their lives when they know it's all about to go away. But then this hand shows up, and uh, that's pretty eerie. A hand, human hand writing in the plaster, the finger of God, it says. And... Um, most of the English translators are pretty good with euphemisms. When it says in verse 6 that his limbs gave way, it's his bowels that gave way when he saw the handwriting on the wall. I mean, he was terrified. And the message is that his days are numbered. They're over. His kingdom is gone. His life is gone. Uh, everything that he's been bragging about and proud of is over. That's the message to him. The way they did it, the uh, Persians channeled the Euphrates away from the wall of the city so that the water level sunk enough that they could wade in uh, thigh high under the wall. And they came in that night and sacked the city without a battle. And so the impregnable fortress and siege-proof city fell in one night, and Belshazzar was killed that night. So um, that's a pretty interesting story on its own. Um, I feel sort of professionally obligated to ask, what are we meant to learn from that? And uh, one thing that's, I think, a fairly obvious point from this is all of our days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. I don't know if you ever saw Total Recall. It was a 1990 Arnold Schwarzenegger movie uh, that was either in a dream or in reality uh, colonization of Mars. They had a biosphere basically set up so that they could mine uh, minerals from Mars. And uh, as one of the dramatic scenes of the movie unfolded, a couple of people got knocked out of the biosphere kind of area out into the environment of Mars, and that didn't go very well for them. Um, you know, they either suffocated or froze uh, very, very quickly, in just a few seconds, but in the early days of CGI, their eyes also bulked out and their faces kind of melted and it was pretty memorable. So, uh, because the environment of Mars can't sustain human life, but for more than just a few seconds, apparently, if the movie's to be believed, and I believe it. <laughs> so, um, the thing is, Earth is like that too, right? It can't sustain human life uh, for very long. A few more seconds than Mars, but really not many in the big scheme of things. Uh, all of our days are numbered. All of us are going to die, and it's going to seem soon uh, for all of us when we do, most likely. Uh, the Persians are already at the gate. I mean, Elias is here already. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> Let's see if he's listening to me. <laughs> and we know it. We know we're going to die, and we dread death. And it seems to shape a lot of how we react to life in this world. Um, if you're young, you may not feel this as acutely. There's a lot of death-defying 
amongst the young, and there's a lot of death dreading amongst us who are older, but it always looms over us as the shadow uh, that we can never escape. I think we're the only creatures that think about death. I assume we are. Um, my dog seems to be averse to pain, but and seems to want to avoid that, but he doesn't have any actuarial tables about how long he's likely to live and doesn't plan for it and think about it as much as we do. Um, and, but most of us don't think about it a lot directly. Uh, we do things to keep from thinking about it. You know, we do things that help us escape, that will amuse us and distract us. Uh, we drink so we don't have to think about things that we don't want to think about. Or we use diet and exercise to try to stave off the inevitable uh, approach of death. Uh, we think that if we can uh, get everything right with our diet and exercise regimen, we won't actually die. Nobody thinks that, it's just that's part of the appeal of diet and exercise regimens. And we create religions and philosophies uh, that somehow are supposed to make us not mind that we're going to die. Like, it's really okay because of some idea that I have or some notion that I have. Uh, but these things don't hold up very well under pressure and over time. It's a rare bird, though, that you run into that thinks and talks about death frequently. Actually, if you, if you had a friend who thought and talked about death very much, you would say they were morbid. And you'd say, I wonder if they're off a little bit. You know, why do they think and talk about death so much? Um, but the Bible says we should. Like Psalm 90 says, uh, in a prayer, it says, God, teach me to number my days so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. That you gain wisdom by thinking about your death and preparing for your death. Interestingly, to me at least, uh, the book of Daniel and a lot of Judaism, uh, sectors of Judaism is included in the wisdom literature of the Bible with uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs um, because Daniel speaks in these terms so much. So for us to pursue wisdom and to think about death are things that go together. Um, but if you do talk about death and think about death a lot, you'll be about as welcome as the uh, floating hand at the party, you know, because most people don't want to hear about it, don't want to think about it, don't want to talk about it. And you'll feel a little intrusive. You'll feel like Daniel did when he came to the party. You know, the party didn't get better when Daniel arrived to talk about death. It got a lot worse. And sometimes if we talk about big questions like this, it makes the parties worse. Um, but it's our calling in some ways to read the handwriting on the wall for our friends. To read what the finger of God has said about us and our life with Him and our future with Him. And to say things even sometimes when they can be a, a bit abrasive or difficult to hear. Uh, we're not called to be abrasive on purpose. But sometimes uh, what we have to share with our friends can be pretty pointy-edged. Um, We've been talking in this series about how you feel weird if you're an exiled Christian scattered among the nations. And this is one of the ways that you feel weird. It's because you pay attention to and think about and talk about things that aren't the most pleasant conversation all the time. But that's part of what we're called to do because we know our days are numbered and we know our friends' days are numbered. And we try to take that seriously if we can and think about it a lot. Uh, that's what we would call the bad news is that our days are numbered. The good news 
in this passage, which doesn't just leap off the page at first, uh, is that death's days are also numbered. That death is not a permanent reality in God's world. It's an intruder. And its days are numbered. It won't always be this way. And this uh, is an anticipation of the Christian hope of Jesus coming in his death and resurrection uh, on our behalf that is to come. But you can see the hope already displayed in this chapter. There are like two hopeful things that Christians have when we think about death that are gifts to us that we wouldn't otherwise have. The first of them is deals with the idea that the problem of death isn't just that we die. It's that we don't know what comes after that and what our future with God is and what the verdict on our life, if a verdict is to be given, what that verdict is going to be. Um, that's a big part of the fear of death is, um, I don't know, if I have to give an account for my life, I can't imagine that going very well. And um, most people feel that way. That's why part of the handwriting on the wall that was so terrifying for Belshazzar first said, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The verdict of your life in history, uh, you are ephemeral. You're, and especially it's speaking morally and spiritually, who you were, your character is ephemeral rather than weighty. Uh, it's a bad verdict on his life. And the word was uh, tekel. Right? Tekel, you have been weighing the balances and found wanting. Kind of the hard truth in the Bible is that. The verdict on all of our lives is temple. In all of our lives, no matter um, how much self-justifying energy we put into our internal monologues, no matter how flattered we are by other people, and no matter how well we think we compare with the people around us, uh, by God's standards, by God's law, the verdict over all of our lives is temple. We may not be as bad as Belshazzar uh, in some ways. But I'm sure in other ways we are. And so the fear of death is fueled by this idea that I know that I'm weightless morally and spiritually. And I know that the verdict on my life can't be pleasant. And this is what the good news of the gospel of Jesus addresses for us. Because when God came to our rescue in his son Jesus Christ, uh, he pronounced a verdict on his own son's life. And he says... Uh, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found worthy. Right? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet he was treated as if the verdict over his life was tekel. Our verdict was given to him and he died under the punishment of God for us. His verdict was given to us. Uh, weighty. Acceptable. So that because he was forsaken in our stead, we're accepted by God. Uh, because he was treated as one who was weightless in the eyes of God. We're given glory, a substance and a weight of being the true children of God. And so this horrible word, tekel, that could easily and truly be written over our lives is erased from over our lives. And we're accepted by God because of Jesus. So that takes a lot of the sting away from our fear of death. Uh, that what we anticipate is a verdict of not guilty from God, a verdict of love and acceptance from God, not that we have deserved or earned, not because our self-justification language is true, uh, but because Jesus has lived and died for us. And so that enables us to, to look death in the face 
uh, without having to turn away and get drunk and abuse ourselves and distract ourselves, or even to justify ourselves. Uh, our hope and our death is that Jesus Christ has died for us. But the other thing that Christians have as a hope, thinking about death, is that we know death will end. That death's days are numbered as well uh, because of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. So this is the last enemy that he came to defeat is death. And the proof that we have of this is the empty tomb. That Jesus has risen from the dead. He's the first example of something from the new fixed world. Our future home is the body of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And he says, I've been raised, you'll be raised as well. And we'll live in a world that isn't hostile to us, in which human life can be sustained for more than a few seconds or a few years. Right? The new heavens and the new earth that Jesus has promised to create. Uh, this is our hope that death will end. Daniel, in this story, has uh, some hope shown to him because he, he survives this. Like he's made third in the kingdom that night, which you think would put a target on his back for the Persians. But they were able to figure out kind of who he was and what was really going on somehow. He was third in the kingdom because Nabonidus was, the, was first in the kingdom. Um, all Belshazzar could offer Daniel was to be third. That's an aside. But if you ever went to a college uh, freshman Bible class and they told you the Bible isn't true because Nabonidus was really the king? Well, uh, they were wrong about that. And I just thought I'd tell you. Um, <laughs> But we believe in the resurrection of the dead because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so when we talk about death, we're not left to make up all the stuff that people make up at funerals these days. You know, people say the most preposterous things at funerals that you think, you don't really believe that, surely. And yet, you know, there you are saying it without any reason and and you dismiss our faith because you think it's not reasonable, but you think that bird that landed on your kitchen windowsill this morning was your mama? You know, it might have been, but it seems like a strange thing to believe. Or if you're a ball player, apparently your parents have to watch you from heaven, and that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> but, but people talk about things at uh, funerals that you think, well, you can't possibly really believe that. Um, so I feel like it's really important for us not to be sentimental around death and funerals because our hope is so specific and concrete. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, we think mama's square dancing with Jesus now, necessarily, right? Because we don't think the resurrection of the body has happened yet, but we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so we don't indulge fanciful hopes about uh, the afterlife because we're holding so firmly to the concrete hope that we have. Because the tomb is empty, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that is our hope that one day death will end and will no longer have power over us and we won't die again. And we believe this because the evidence for this is so overwhelming. Right? We have 500 plus eyewitnesses who uh, all went, the appointed eyewitnesses, the uh, 11, all went to their deaths without backing up on their story at all. When the apostles preached about this, they said, go ask people. These things didn't happen in a corner. Uh, there are people here who know this. Go ask them. They didn't say, we have this uh, treasured belief down in our little hearts that you know, death won't be the end, that Jesus is really alive in a way when you think about it. There was none of that. They said, if, if the tomb is not empty, 
We're the biggest fools in the world to believe this, and our faith is totally in vain. Because uh, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so, we believe death's days are numbered. Have you ever had much first-hand uh, experience with hospice? With loved ones who are dying? Hospice is pretty amazing. I, um, I can't figure out if, like, super nice, wise people get attracted to hospice and take jobs there, or if hospice makes the people that get jobs there super nice and wise. <laughs> but something about being around death all the time seems to have a pretty beautiful effect on the people who are serving in hospice. Uh, seems like a hard gig to have if you didn't have hope about the afterlife. But, you know, in hospice, palliative care is offered, and it's good, as far as it goes, but the overwhelming notion with hospice is this is preparation for death. You know, we're, we're giving palliative care in light of impending death, and that's the service that they provide. And it's pretty similar to our calling as Christians in exile scattered in the nations, is that we live in a setting with our friends and people we love of impending death. Uh, we speak to dying people every time we speak to people. It may be a while off in our minds, but it's really not that far off. And our calling is both for ourselves to think about our numbered days and to think about the hope we have with death ending. But it's also to crash a few parties and ask a few questions that may be a little awkward to ask and raise subjects that may be a little bit hard to raise at times and be a little more public with our faith than we would feel totally comfortable being. Uh, because this is why Jesus has scattered us as exiles here, to speak about our hope in the face of death. Because all our days are numbered, and death's debts are numbered. Let's pray.